My name is Peter Botros, for those who don't know me, and it's our absolute honor and a privilege to have you with us again this morning. This is our fourth installment in our series, Relationship Mechanics. And throughout the past few weeks, and, and again next week, we're looking at a simple question. We're asking, how do relationships work? How do relationships work? Because if you're anything like me, relationships are like cars. You feel a little bit confused about how they work. You know, they're mysterious, sometimes unpredictable. And you're asking yourself, is there any way for me to know how relationships actually work? And we talked about different things about relationships in terms of the engine and, and how you're wired with a relational pattern that assists you in one way or another to actually function in your relationships, we talked about the fuel of being glad to be around people and how that works for you. And last week, uh, uh, Susie spoke about kindness and would you come to mind when they think of kind. And today I want to address the idea of a transmission, a manual transmission. You know that every relationship, just like cars, have a transmission. You know, transmission in uh, in my very simplistic understanding of cars, sends power uh, to the drive wheels. You know, the engine uh, rotates in a particular ratio, the outputs that requires, uh, uh, depending on the, on the cycle and the stage of, of the trip and the, and, and the car, and, and it either gives you a, a lot of power or, or, or speed, uh, the ratios, you know, uh, in the beginning, you know, there's lots of rotation in the engine, but not as much as speed coming in the output. But later on, as you go into the fourth gear, almost your input equates to the output. And, and, and what it teaches me is that relationships have cycles. And in different cycles, you have different input and different output. And unless we understand how our relationships work, we will put ourselves into the fourth gear without we go into the, the first gear and, and the car will go crazy because it's not the right move. It's not the right shift. And have you ever been in a, in a relationship where you felt a little bit confused about your next move? You didn't know whether you're on first gear, second gear, third gear, or fourth gear and you tried your options to do anything possible to make it to the next level. It is a quite a restricting and a crippling experience if you don't know where your relationship is going and how you can push it to the next level, isn't it? I recall in my first uh, uh, teaching job ever after graduating, I went to a school, it's a non-Christian school, uh, uh, religious but non-Christian, and uh, uh, the, the, the manager that I had met with and interviewed me was absolutely amazing. She's probably one of the best leaders I have ever seen. She was polite, she was courteous, she was helpful. She, I, she was really fantastic. And uh, on my first day, uh, I got introduced to the rest of the team. There were about six or seven of us. And we were in a particular faculty, the Faculty of Art, and we had our own staff room. And on the first day of school, if you're a teacher, you know that there is uh, professional development sessions throughout the day. The second day, we had the morning professional development, and the, and the rest of the day is usually faculty planning days where you and your team members uh, plan for the term or, or plan for the semester. 
And being, uh, it's my first year, I didn't know what's the custom. I went to the uh, big room where we had our training. And then after the session, I just uh, headed back to the, uh, to the staff room, our small staff room, and uh, you know, planning to, ta- to have my lunch and do whatever this planning thing means. And as I waited, there were no other teammates coming into the room. And it's like, okay, we're supposed to do team planning. It doesn't seem like there is a team. I'll do the planning myself. And uh, after about an hour, an hour and a half, the rest of them coming in, they didn't look like they were planning. They looked like they had a beautiful lunch and a great time conversing, chatting, joking with one another. And they're coming with such energy and enthusiasm. And there and then I realized I wasn't invited. I was the only one not invited. And, and it just baffled me for a little bit. What, what, what's wrong? You know, I don't have... Uh, uh, you know, the understanding of what happens in schools. So I, I basically thought maybe it's, it was an oversight. Maybe I wasn't there in the room when they decided, you know, spasmodically that they're going to go there. I, I didn't understand. But soon enough, I realized their intentionality. Week after week, uh, they began to, uh, to joke about Jesus. Having said to them uh, rather naively on the first day that, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a strong follower of Jesus, and, and, and this, they, they began to joke about Jesus. Like, I mean, real nasty jokes. To the extent that at one stage, I had to block my ear and make, make it obvious to them that I'm feeling quite uncomfortable. It was unbearable. And over time, my room is, was upstairs, uh, the, the room where I taught, and I had the room for myself all day long, and it had a little studio, editing studio attached to it. I could have spent every single day there, every lunch, other than the times where there is yard duties, I could have spent that in my room, and I promised before God I was tempted to do so. Because when you feel people are not including you and, and a little bit ruthless and unkind towards you, and you don't even have a clue where it's coming from and where is the drift has come from, it feels quite uncomfortable. You feel like, well, where is this going to? Is it, is it going to get from bad to worse? Is there a hope? Is there a reason why this is happening that I can uh, amend that, manufacture that? And, and I was started reminiscing in my mind, well, I'm on 12-month contract. Let the contract come to finish. And God willing, I find another job somewhere else. And uh, all, all that you hope for, like I hoped for, is that things will change. You want to go under the doona and hope that they will treat you better later on. And I don't know about you, because this is not just a work matter. This happens in all types of arenas. It might have been a confusion in your own romantic relationships. Maybe you dated a particular person, and there was like that chemistry and excitement, and you know, everything is buzzy, life is seen through a color glasses, and after a while, things seems to calm down in a way that it's stale. And you're confused, what's next? If it's, it's a getting from bad to worse, what's going on here? Maybe, maybe it happens in a friendship group where you've had a conflict with somebody and, and you communicated with them like that real people do. You express your, uh, your concerns and, and it seems like that the other person actually listened to you and received feedback quite well. And, and then you wait for a week and two or three and there seems like something in there that's missing. It's like you think, I addressed conflict politely and truthfully, but 
it's not the same anymore. And you wonder what on earth is going to happen next. And for all of us, we think life sometimes can become like a, a, you know, a, a sign of things to come. Like if it's bad now, it means it's going to be worse later. If it's good now, it's going to be good forever. And, and sometimes we're confused as to the cycles uh, that relationships go into. So today, in the little time I have, I want to share with you something that most of you already know, either intuitively or through your education or simply through your relational experience. It's not going to be something new. I apologize uh, to that. I'm not necessarily apologize. I'm happy that I'm reminding you of something that may be quite critical for some of your relationships. Because some of us are right now in a place where we're starting to doubt the future of one or two of our relationships. And for some of us, we're confused as what is the next right wise step to take. For some of us, we feel tempted to quit a relationship that we should persevere with. And some of us potentially are holding to a relationship that's hurt. So in the next few minutes I have, I want to share with you the very same confusion that maybe some of the early church uh, people that followed Jesus experienced in their time, because this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a, a modern psychology type of stuff. This is a cycle that every uh, group encounters in every team and maybe even every couple. And the story that I want to pick up from is written in the book of Acts, which is almost like the first uh, 30 years of, of, of the church history. It's documented by a guy called Dr. Luke. And uh, he basically followed uh, the, the establishment and the spread of the early church uh, in, in, uh, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And uh, these very people who we're going to read about may have experienced the same difficulty and challenge in a relationship. You see, what happens after the resurrection and the ascension and, the, and, the, and, the, and 50 days later, the Holy Spirit... Uh, came upon the church. And that was the birth and the establishment of what we call uh, the church, the gathering, the ecclesia. And uh, this group of people, before then, they had no idea what followers of Jesus going to become. Like when you speak about Christianity or group of Christians, you probably today have some sort of assumptions and values and, and parameters about what that looks like. For them, this was new, totally new. They were increasing in number, but they didn't actually know what it looked like to have this newfound relationship with God with a group of people known as the church or the Christians or the followers of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 6, it tells us that the church kept on growing. After 3,000 people, they became 5,000 people. And at the end of chapter 5, they seem to have more and more people coming to know Jesus through the teaching of the apostles. And they would gather together in the temple uh, because they, they were predominantly Jewish in, 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 in that time. And they would also gather one-on-one -on -one, uh, or, or uh, small groups in homes. And in, in Acts chapter 6, it says this, In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing. You see, the reality is, they were growing so significantly, and they were having a lot of fun. In fact, 
you would know what this means when you establish a group, whether it's a Facebook group or, or whether it's a friendship group or whether it's a hobby group, whether it's an event that grows and people are attracted to the cause or to the event or to the relational environment that you've created. You see there is a little bit of a buzz there, isn't there? Or maybe even happens in a, in a social category. Maybe you're in a workplace and you found somebody else who's actually quite a, an enjoyable character to be around because uh, they share similar categories, similar habits, or, or similar interests, or whatever it means. We begin to form what they call a forming stage of a team. This is almost your first gear in a relational environment, whether it's a group or just a couple. You base your interest around one another, even though you're quite independently, but you found a connection. You begin to form this relationship, just like the disciples began to form a relationship together. And in those times, whether that's uh, in a family environment, in a romantic environment, in a work environment, you probably notice that people are at their best behavior. People are displaying their best self. You know, everybody's on eggshells, and everybody's so polite, and sorry, and please, and thank you, and, and everybody's so polite. You wonder, well, I've never been in an environment like that before. Are they for real? And we all, either in this stage, either try to get along or pretend that we get along, because we're excited about this formational of a particular team or a couple or whatever it might be. And all of us are seeking to answer one question. Am I lovable? Am I lovable? Will these people connect with me even if they get to know me? And we are so desperate to keep tension away. Just in case people look inside of us, just in case when people disagree with us, they reject us. Just in case that what they see in me doesn't meet their expectations and, and, and that fun and excitement and euphoria dissipates. But the truth is this, friends, just like all of us, the church, the early church, experienced the next stage of forming a group and a team. It says this, that when the number of the disciples was uh, increasing, the Grecian Jews, or the Hellenistic, among them complained or murmured, murmured against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what happens, uh, what used to happen in those days, that the disciples used to receive the relief, you know, food relief or money or whatever it might be, that they may be able to distribute to widows and people who are desperately in need particularly those widows that didn't have a family that could look after them. It beca they became the church's responsibility. And there were two groups, the Hellenistic uh, uh, Jews and the Hebraic uh, Jews, and they not necessarily just people with different languages, they were different cultures. The Hellenistic uh, Jews, they were basically people from the diaspora. They, they were outside the, uh, Palestine. They were a native to, to the land. And they would come and make Palestine their, uh, their area. And they spoke Greek and they behaved like Greeks. The uh, 
uh, Hebraic Jews, they were native to Palestine. They lived in there. They spoke uh, Aramaic or, 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 uh, and they kept the Jewish customs. And they, you know, they were the real deal Jews. And there's always been rivalry between them back in the, in the Jewish days. But now they find themselves in the same group. They find themselves in the same uh, social uh, group. And after a little while, their expectations were not met. The Hellenistic group of people started thinking they're treating us differently. They're treating our widows differently. They're not actually looking after our widows. They, we're getting the raw end of the deal. So when you, uh, in that stage, you form an opinion about others, their character, their integrity, and their competence, and sometimes you voice your opinion. In this case, the word complain actually means murmuring. It's much the same word that, uh, that Moses experienced from the is Israelites when they complained against his leadership. And in this case, uh, the, the widows and the Hellenistic group started to complain against the apostles and saying, you're not really treating us well. This created what people call the storming state, which happens in every environment, in every circle, and even every romantic relationship. We are so desperate to ignore the time of disagreement or clashes of personalities or clashes of preferences where we're trying whatever we can to keep away from tension. But as soon as we engage with people on a more serious level and open ourselves up a little bit and we show our, our true colors, eventually people form opinions of us and their expectations may be uh, are met in us. And that begins about a sense of disagreement or a sense of tension or even a conflict. And you are not a person that is going to ever avoid this stage in your life if the disciples themselves, the church that was anointed and lived in the days of Jesus, could not avoid that. You know, the problem is we're surprised and we're disappointed when in our relationships we discover that we disagree. I remember uh, back in, in, in the days of my first church, there was a particular uh, couple, a young couple, they got married and and about three years into their marriage, uh, um, uh, they were talking to Susie, and I said, we don't disagree. We, we haven't had a conflict. And I'm thinking, all right. You think that's healthy? You haven't had a conflict? That doesn't mean you should have a star. That means some of you suppressing their real opinions because you couldn't possibly agree on everything in life. It's someone is being suppressed in this relationship and some of us are desperately and, and trying so hard to not let people know our true colors and our real opinions because we fear that if there is a disagreement, can they be trusted to love me? So if the first stage, we're wondering if we're lovable, in the second storming stage, we're wondering if people can still be trusted to love us if we disagree if they see who we really are. But storming creates one of two options for us. Either some of us go through the pain and try to get to the next level of what we'd call norming and figuring out how we can meet each other's expectations, but the sad reality, and it happens in marriages, and it's pretty tough to bear where people adjourn. It's almost like the reverse button 
on this thing. It's called a journey where people say, I'm not enjoying it anymore. See you later. I, I don't have that fuzzy euphoria feeling anymore. That must not be God's will for me. Friends, the best thing to do is to follow what the church did in this instant on how to deal with conflict. And I'll talk about conflict and suspension and how to ride uh, the, the bumps of the road next week without feeling drained by it. But let me go into this idea of norming and what the disciples or the 12 did. It says in verse 2, it says, So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on table. They were basically saying, we can't take our eyes off our proper and primary responsibility of spiritual development and work on social welfare. It's not that social welfare is inferior to spiritual welfare, but it's a matter of responsibility. It's not a matter of what's more important, it's a matter of what is important for me to do. So they said, choose seven brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, that they are spiritually minded and practically wise. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. What they were basically saying, hey, let's clarify expectations here. Friends, we understand that we stuffed up. We haven't been able to meet your expectations. We haven't been able to provide the social welfare that you deserve. We have failed you. We haven't been able to balance our responsibilities. So we're going to not apologize about our role and say we're going to do it better. We're simply going to adjust your expectations of us and adjust our expectations of ourselves. We are not going to say, sorry, we stuffed up. We're going to do better next time. They said, we're actually not going to do that anymore. We're going to focus our attention in one particular thing, and we're going to ask other people to do another role. They clarified expectation. They clarified other people's expectations of them. They clarified their own expectations of themselves, and they also clarified to others their expectations of them. They said, don't ask us anymore about social welfare. We're going to delegate that responsibility to the seven people that you choose, and we will look after our own primary responsibility. And this is what we know as the norming stage in any relationships. If you're going to step outside the disagreement and the fighting and, and perpetuation of anger and, and conflict, you got to stand still and clarify expectations. That's the first thing. We clarify roles and boundaries, as well as clarify our informal rules of interactions. You see, most of the time, we have understandings in our mind of how people should behave and relate to us, but we keep them guessing. We don't clarify. We don't communicate. We don't necessarily tell other people what they expect of us or what we expect of them or what we expect of ourselves. Several years ago, Susie and I had a, a bit of a disagreement. 
I came home one day and she said to me, listen, you got there to actually help out around the house. Susie is a superhuman. She, she literally is, this is not, I'm, I'm not bragging on my wife. I, I, I find it hard at times publicly because it may be misunderstood, but she's honestly superhuman. We've been married now for 23 years. She looks after the house. She looks after the kids. She has her own business. She's got ministry, bigger ministry than I have. She's just, and, and, and she never complains about the great majority of the work she has to do at home. And I do a couple of things, and I feel like, oh, I'm tired at the end of it. Uh, but when she said to me that day, um, you haven't been helping around the house, I was mad. I'm thinking, you serious? You, you're undermining and not appreciating the amount of effort that I put week in. I vacuum once and uh, it's just hard work. You know what that means. Uh, and then I, I was really honestly confused. And she said to me, listen, don't be confused. I have put this cl- dry clothing basket all folded, you know, the clothes are folded and ready to go upstairs. I've left it at, at the, 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 the staircase, at the bottom of the staircase, and I would leave it three days in a row just for you to pick it up, show some initiative, and take it upstairs. Is that too much to ask? And she would do that for three weeks, and she would progressively take the basket from the bottom of the staircase to the middle of the staircase. You know, we've got a big one, and she would leave it there. But I would very tactfully walk past it, and then even, you know, I haven't dropped it, not even once. I just walked past it. And I said, if you really wanted me to take it upstairs, why didn't you say Because men are like that. You know, we don't understand what we're meant to do. If you tell me, I'll do it. But I honestly would have completely walked past it and didn't even notice it. And sometimes all it takes for us is to communicate our expectations of other people in the small things and in the big things. Otherwise, you may set yourself up for failure or set other people up for failure. Clarify expectations. So first of all, clarify other people's expectations of you. Secondly, clarify your own expectations of you. And then clarify your expectations of other people. That's exactly what the disciples did. And then look what happens. I'll come back to that, but look at what happened. It says that this proposal pleased the people and they picked up you know, seven people who were... Uh, predominantly from a Hellenistic uh, background, so they really looked after those who were concerned. And then in verse 7, it says this, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that music to your ear? Not only did the number increase, just like it was written earlier in the chapter, but it increased rapidly. The group became so functional and, and, and so blessed through their unity that God found them available and ready to be blessed. Not only were they increasing rapidly and the word of God was spreading everywhere because the, now the disciples are doing their, their real deal, their job, but also it says that priests who are totally disengaged from this new sect, so to speak, Christianity, became to follow Jesus. What an awesome thing. It says a large number of them. We call this the performing state, where the group accomplishes or the relationship accomplishes its true and, and, and ultimate goal. 
where people feel that they're doing their role, there is cooperation, there is efficiency, there is unity, and there is literally harmony far greater than the excitement and the euphoria that comes in early on in the forming stage that we all want to hold on to. So what can you and I do in order to establish this norming in our relationships? You need to clarify expectations. You need to hear other people's expectations of you. You gotta, you gotta ask people's expectations of you. Then you need to, to clarify your own expectations of you. Then you need to clarify your expectations of them. But you first need to hear their expectations of you. Is it something that you're unaware of or neglecting? It could be something simple or it could be something to do with your habit or your trait, with the way you function and the way you relate to people. You just need to hear what other people's expectations of you. Then you need to clarify your own expectations of you. Listen to me. I am not here sitting down to say to you, whatever other people expect of you, you have to give it. That doesn't function that way. The disciples didn't say, okay, okay, we're going to let go of our real primary role and we're going to look after the widows and we're going to look after the social worker. They said, no, sorry. This is not our expectations of ourselves. You don't have to be manipulated and controlled into someone else's agenda. This is not the meaning of Christianity. Just because you pull up the Christian thing to someone else, if you're a Christian, you will let me or you will do this for me, that is unfair and untrue. If you're manipulative, somebody must stand and say, no, sorry, I won't do that. That's not the right expectation of me. Even if you're doing it subtly or overtly, don't pull the Christian thing on people. And if you're a Christian, you will do that. And if you really love God, you would do this. No. There are expectations. They got to be realistic for you. They got to be realistic for me. And then you also need to find realistic expectations of other people. I reckon most of our disappointments with others come from the place where our expectations of other people are not realistic. Are not realistic. Let me show you different circles of relationships that you and I have in our lives. The first one is intimate relationships. That might be your spouse or your, or, or your uh, immediate family. For others, we, we, we move from intimate relationships to core relationships where you have significant people in your life that you do life together with. And then you might move into a larger circle where you've got friends that you relate to and you connect with. Then we've got associates and all of us got associates in our lives. And then we all deal with strangers in the shopping center, in the car park. And let me tell you something that you know intuitively. I just want to remind you of it. Your expectations of your intimate group should never be the same expectations of strangers or even your associates. So let me give you an example. I have expectations of my immediate family that I'd receive unconditional love from them despite of my performances. I can't have that same expectations of my friends, associates, and strangers. They're going to say, have you done what needs to be done to receive the respect and the trust that is due to you? It's a conditional thing based on our performances and our integrity. 
another thing, you know, in, in, in my relationships at home, I can voice my, my opinion and my expectations and, and, and put my two bobs worth, solicited or unsolicited, but I can't do that with other people. You can't go to some associate and say, look, I, let, let me give you a couple of ideas about how you're using your finances. Or let me, you know, I saw you, how you parent your child, and let me give you some, some tips about how you can do that better. You, you can't. There's different expectations, and if you have the same expectations of your intimate uh, family, the same as what you expect of associates, you're always going to be disappointed. It's not their problem, it's your problem, it's my problem. We're having unrealistic expectations. If you expect them to deal with you in a particular way, if you expect them to be transparent with you in a particular way, you can't expect everybody else to do that. Realistic expectations of others. The same thing I do with my family and you probably do with your family. I make decisions with my family based on long-term intentionality for a relationship that will last a lifetime. I I can sometimes say things or withhold saying things because I'm building a long-term relationship with them. I'm not building a long-term relationship with associates. I am building my relational interaction a compass based on short-term interaction. Friends, unless we have right and realistic expectations of other people, you're going to set yourself a really difficult task and you're going to set other people up for failure. I want to say this today. Don't give up on a relationship that is God's anointed, and appointed particularly in the area of intimate relationship, regardless how it feels today. Because you can shift the gear. And it will take a shift to make a lift. But you got to shift the gear. In an intimate relationship, you don't really have an option. You got to make it work. But there's some of us in relationship that are harmful, or maybe even there is an element of bullying, or there is exclusion and difficulty. And you feel like you have to sit down and receive it because you're a Christian. Friends, you've got to identify who are in your different circles. And you've got to deal with them accordingly. In terms of trust, transparency, and your time investment. You, get, you, get, you say to me, oh Peter, you're now using psychology, not Jesus. Uh, really? Uh, do you know that Jesus hasn't had an intimate group? Do you know Jesus had John who laid on his chest and Mary whom he looked after her even in the day of his crucifixion? He said to John, not to anybody else, listen John, this, she is your mom, you are her, her child, look after us, you're my intimate group. Then he had a group of friends, they known as the three, John, James, and Peter. He invested in them more than he invested in the other 12. In fact, he would bring them with him to that amount of transfiguration, and he would take them on into a private environment where he raised a little girl. He didn't allow other people to come into this environment. And then he had the 12. His, his friends, not just the core, he had a group of friends who were the 12, whom he invested, most people say 90% of his time was invested in those 12. And then he had the, the, the associates, 72 people, whom he sent to reach out to other villages. And then he had the crowds. And let me tell you something, just, to, just in case you're wondering. It is written of Jesus that he didn't trust some people because he knew their heart. 
He wasn't transparent with everybody. He told some people things in parables and said to the disciples, listen, to you was given the secrets of the kingdom. He definitely did not give his time equitably to everybody because the reality is he invested 90% of his time with his disciples. Unless you know whom God is put in your circles of influence, you may actually live your life feeling disappointed by people and disappointing people. I want to give you a homework. You already know these things. But I want to give you a homework to re-evaluate who is in your different circles. And trust God in the difficult environments where you're meant to stick strong, that He'll give you the strength. And in the environments where you feel manipulated, that God would give you the wisdom to make the right shift. Let me pray for you. Father, we are so blessed and honored that you invite us into a relationship with you and into a relationship with one another. Thank you, Almighty God, that your heart is being displayed in in every child and in every son and daughter that you have redeemed by your blood, and that you have indwelt by your Spirit. Thank you, Almighty God, that you don't want us just to have a relationship with you that is individualistic, but you want, to have, uh, you want us to have relationship with others around us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the wisdom and the courage to know when and how to make the next shift so that our relationships would reflect the very heart of Christ, the very way Jesus lived, that we would invest in the relationships that you want us to invest in deeply, and that we would be aware of relationships that may be harmful. And through the help of other people, those who are spiritually mature, those who mentor us and help us out, that we will discover a next gear shift. Bless us, Lord, and I specifically today want to pray for those people who are struggling with an intimate or a core relationship. They know that they meant to push through. They know that they meant to put their, their, their sacrificial hat on. And Lord, maybe it's stale. Maybe there is conflict. Maybe it's difficult. I pray that they'll commit the time and transparency and trust into this relationship until they see you heal their relationships, I pray. We love you. We honor you. In the awesome, precious name of Jesus, I pray. God's people said amen. Amen. Let's be upstanding and sing our last song.